Hi, and welcome to Paragoricon. My name is Jack Parker, and today it's just me here. There's going to be a short episode on blood phobia and injection and injury phobia, uh, what they call BII phobias, and why they're unlike any other phobia. And I'm going to ask some questions today about uh, what it is that we want out of how we categorize medical conditions. I'm going to start out by defining what a phobia is. So phobias, a strong uh, irrational or extreme fear towards an object or situation that results in immediate anxiety and often things like panic attacks. Phobias tend to correspond to one of several major types, allowing them to be broken down into environmental, situational, animal, and blood, needle, and injury type. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. There's also a cute little other category to catch everything else, say a fear of the ordinal numbers, but those things are rare. And one reason this is probably the case is that the big main groups of phobias tend to correspond to subjects for which it is evolutionarily potentially quite advantageous to have at least some sort of aversion to that object. So animal phobias often involve fears of spiders, snakes, and animals associated with uncleanliness, and we seem to be more able to develop fears of these animals than others following a trauma. Environmental phobias include like fears of heights, falling from a high space can kill you, so you don't want to be too enthusiastic about going way high up. Humans are bad at being high up. Similarly, fears of rejection and awkward social situations, um, it makes sense to have an aversion to poor social performance if you think of the historical importance, and well, modern importance too, but particularly the historical importance of maintaining in-group status when you're a squishy, vulnerable human that must rely on others for survival. Uh, on the subject, actually, of adaptations, here's a historical fun fact about that fourth group of phobias that sound like they're all about uh, medical stuff. Charles Darwin himself is said to have had a blood phobia. He wanted to be a doctor, but in medical school, he realized he couldn't endure the goriness of the work as he grew faint even at the sight of blood. He became a naturalist only after that door had been closed to him, though someone else would have published on natural selection if he hadn't, I'm sure. Our topic today is on that fourth category, that bane for Darwin, BII phobias, blood injection injury, because they share some really interesting properties that you don't see in other phobias that makes it questionable that they're the same kind of entity. Uh, Trigger warning if you have one of these phobias, it may be a little bit of a rough ride, particularly because we're going to discuss things like features of the the cardiovascular system, and it, it may sound kind of gross, so... If you have a blood injection or injury phobia, you may want to prepare yourself for this episode. If you want to listen to it, uh, you might want to like lie down or have a nice glass of water or something so you have lots of fluids in you. It'll help. Now, blood phobia is the extreme fear of blood. Pretty straightforward. You have a fear response and often a fainting response or syncope in response to seeing blood seeping from a wound or blood spurting. Analogously, we have needle phobia, an extreme fear of needles. It's very common, surprisingly common, actually. Um, so blood phobia has a rate of around 2 to 4% in the population. Needle phobia, um, a good estimate seems to be about 10% of the population, with some studies finding a rate almost twice as high in certain populations. Even more people have at least a fear or discomfort around needles that doesn't meet the criteria for a phobia. The needle phobia can be broken down in a number of ways. One is something like a traditional phobia that causes symptoms generally limited to those associated with anxiety. 
But in many cases of blood and needle phobia, you have this fainting response. Now, you may not think it sounds unusual for fainting to accompany a phobia. We have a well-worn, passed-down cultural image, for example, of women in petticoats panicking and then fainting in the arms of their exasperated companions. And it's true that a person might panic and eventually pass out from hyperventilating in response to a stimulus that they are afraid of, but the mechanism there is different from the syncope and presyncope that is characteristic of blood and needle phobias. Phobias are, generally speaking, very well-delineated psychiatric disorders, and unlike some more controversial categorizations, phobias seem to clearly represent a cluster of particular psychological symptoms. And they are associated with a consistent set of physical symptoms in the face of the phobia subject, symptoms associated with extreme anxiety. Your blood pressure is going to go up. Your pulse will quicken. You might sweat through your clothes, have a panic attack, get shaky, get extremely emotional, start feeling like you're having palpitations oh God. and like you can't slow your heart down. Oh no. It's like you are jittery and on edge. Jesus. That's your traditional response to the object of a phobia. Very consistent across phobia types, except for the BII, blood injury, and injection phobias. In contrast, Isarlo et al. observed in a 2008 paper, quote, Up to 80% of BII phobics experience syncope or presyncope in the presence of the phobic cues. Such reaction to the feared stimuli is virtually absent in other phobias, end quote. And as Hamilton 1995 writes of patients with needle phobias, quote, The etiology of needle phobia is rooted in an inherited vasovagal reflex that causes shock with needle puncture. With repeated needle exposure, those with an inherited vasovagal shock reflex tend to develop a fear of needles. Unlike most other phobias in which exposure to the feared object excites tachycardia, Victims of needle phobia typically experience a temporary anticipatory tachycardia and hypertension, which on needle insertion turns into bradycardia and hypotension, accompanied by pallor, diaphoresis, tinnitus, syncope or near syncope, and sometimes asystole or death. That's from his 1995 paper. Um, you may note that in there he said death, death could result from needle phobia. 23 deaths minimum can be attributable solely to a vasovagal reflux caused by a needle phobia. Uh, these were witnessed during procedures such as blood donation and subcutaneous injections. So donating blood and getting shots at the doctor resulted in death from the vasovagal shock reflux. So it can kill you in one of two ways, according to Hamilton. The first is a myocardial or cerebral infarction caused by the sudden drop in blood pressure and perfusion. Uh, so in other words, there's not enough blood to an area and it leads to tissue death in the heart or the brain. The other is impairment that leads to ventricular fibrillation or flatlining. With uh, neophobia, sometimes you can fall unconscious and be out for a really long time, which is dangerous. Uh, there was a big survey of around 300 phobia fainters, and it found that a couple of them had been out for 10 to 30 minutes, and a few lost consciousness for one to two hours. Again, this is coming from Hamilton 1995, quote, Although blood pressure usually returns to normal within two hours, and most vasovagal victims feel well enough to resume normal activity within several hours, others have anxiety, malaise, and weakness for one to two days after a vasovagal attack. Another thing that's been observed is convulsions during the fainting. Of 84 blood donors who fainted in one study, around 50% had, had tonic-clonic episodes. Some people can have convulsive seizures, even in response to just having their blood typing done. 
which just involves a finger prick. So what what the hell is happening there? Earlier, I described it being the result of something called the vasovagal responsor reflex. The vagus nerve is part of your parasympathetic nervous system, and it goes all the way down through your abdomen from your brainstem. It's responsible for involuntary physical responses like slowing one's pulse. But the vagus nerve sometimes over-responds to a stimulus. You might be familiar with the result if you've ever stood up too quickly when you're dehydrated, one's heart rate and blood pressure drop, causing nausea, dizziness, and faintness, ringing in the ears, loss of vision, trembling, passing out, since the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, Uh, in the case of metalphobics, sometimes death. This response is what is assumed to be observed when a paradigmatic BII-phobic sees their trigger, vasovagal syncope or presyncope. Uh, The details actually are a little bit up to debate. Sarlo et al. actually have a paper arguing that the sympathetic nervous system is actually more active and that it's not caused by vagus nerve activation, but it's generally thought to be the case that the vasovagal reflex is responsible for this. In either case, whether it's the sympathetic nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system at work, it is an autonomic thing. It is something that happens automatically, and there's evidence that it is an inherited reflex. Interestingly, this response can have no overlap with the response seen in general phobia patients. Some patients don't even have an anticipatory rise in blood pressure from anxiety prior to the drop associated with a vasovagal reflex. There's two different mechanisms going on here. We might wonder, why the hell does this happen? There were some evolutionary theories why those other phobias were able to develop. They were like the result of something going wrong with the naturally beneficial trait of being wary of certain features in the environment, certain animals, things that are legitimate threats, things that could kill you and prevent you from reproducing. People have, as a result, tried to find a story for how BII phobia is adaptive. For example, as fellow sufferer John Sanford wrote in his article, Blood, Sweat, and Fears, one theory is that the reflex associated with vasovagal syncope evolved as a way to support hemostasis under injury. So um, having your blood clot, not having it all leave. As Deal observed in a 2005 article, The kind of syncope we see in blood and needle phobias can be induced in just about anyone by putting them at about 30% blood volume. The response would be beneficial because if you're wounded and your heart rate and blood pressure decrease, then the blood that's flowing out is more likely to clot and your wound will yield lesser blood loss, hopefully. Of course, the reaction, I would point out, would also leave you vulnerable and unconscious on the ground. Uh, an easy snack for predators if you were being attacked, vulnerable to all sorts of environmental hazards. It would have to be the case that a very mild phobia or a tendency towards the phobia was adaptive in a way that was still able to counteract the benefits associated with not feeling dizzy and nauseous in a time of extreme crisis. This sounds like a completely different phenomenon from other phobias. It's been observed that BII phobia can be consuming the way other phobias can be, so the phobic might become so afraid of this happening that they avoid standard activities out of their fear of injury, Um, they might avoid getting important medical attention because of a fear of injections or surgery. In fact, a fear of injections is the number one cited reason for people not going to the dentist. 
but it seems to be maybe a slightly different kind of avoidance than what is going on in a normal phobia, which itself can be quite devastating to one's life. But the reason why it's difficult, I want to be careful about here. As noted in the journal Circulation, many patients with needle phobias have a fear unrelated to needles themselves. They are scared of their reaction. A therapist told a phobic friend of mine once that he had to face his fear of blood and watch while he had it drawn. My friend did watch, and in exchange for his being really brave and watching the procedure that he supposedly had this intense phobia of, he pissed himself because you lose bladder and bowel control sometimes with a vasovagal reflex. And needless to say, it didn't help with his aversion to, to needles. It's weird to say a person has a phobia if they're not averse to the object, but to the horrible physiological reactions they have to them, particularly once you're aware that those reactions have killed people. Of course, there's the question of whether phobias in, in general are like this. The sufferers of the other kinds of phobias have reported fear of their own panic responses in these situations as being the motivators for avoiding them. They were fear of the objects themselves. If you have a snake phobia, is the problem snakes or the problem that you know you freak out around snakes? One of the requirements for having a phobia, one of the criteria, is that the person recognizes that their fear is excessive or unreasonable. So they recognize that the object of the phobia isn't as dangerous as their reaction would suggest. In blood and needle phobias, well, it is the case that blood and needles aren't inherently dangerous, but it does seem there is this inherited reflex. It's it's weird. When is a person warranted in avoiding a stimulus? Uh, I don't think I can answer that question, but there is something here I think about um, a conflict between uh, short versus long-term goals and the desire to avoid aversive stimuli um, at the expense of maybe making life more difficult later on. Um, though again, if the negative response that you're trying to avoid is death, or is more likely a horrible, horrible experience where you pass out and bad things happen to you and you're unconscious or you may put yourself in a vulnerable position, it's not clear how avoiding that is more irrational than avoiding, for example, a food you're allergic to. Fortunately, unlike allergies, blood phobias, injection and needle phobias are far more easy to get rid of. In fact, they can be treated in a very simple manner. For now, I want to focus on the issue of how we categorize these conditions, because it seems like there is a danger in treating BII phobia the same way we treat other phobias. It's not necessarily a matter of how seriously we should take patients. I think we should have more empathy and consideration for phobia sufferers at large. But the way we categorize things frames how physicians are going to respond to them and how individuals are going to think of themselves when they have them. And that can lead to dangerous effects. As Hamilton writes in that article I've been quoting throughout, quote, It's essential that family physicians be knowledgeable about how to manage needle fear if they are to adequately treat these patients. Communicating empathy and respect for patients with needle phobia by assuring them that they are not wimps or oddballs helps them accept their condition without embarrassment. Most victims of needle phobia sincerely believe that their problem is all in their mind and that they would not be fearful if they were stronger or more mature. Many simply do not realize that there are many others with similar fears. Giving patients a name for this condition legitimizes it to them and gives them a tool they can use to buffer their interaction with the healthcare system. End quote. So if you're a doctor and you're listening to this, I hope you bear that in mind. Um, something that I want to emphasize here in support of what he's saying is 
If you, like my friend's therapist, encourage a person with a blood phobia to simply man up and face their fears, you can put them at medical risk. That's not going to solve the problem the way some other treatments seem to be able to. So Osten Sterner found that one can tense one's muscles, just tense one's muscles in a particular way to counteract faintness. And they found in 1991 that a treatment based on this, which is known as applied tension treatment, is way more effective than exposure therapy for treating people with BII phobia. A mixed treatment was best, but only slightly better than the muscle tension alone. So the, the difference between having just exposure therapy and having applied attention was a difference between 40% efficacy and 80% efficacy. And adding an exposure therapy on top of tension therapy only increased it from 80 to 90%. That suggests that most of the advantage for those patients is from applied tension therapy. Exposure therapy requires relaxing in the face of the fearsome stimulus and tensing one's muscles demands you do the opposite. You are having to almost... Uh, at least superficially speaking, opposite reactions to the phobia object. And the treatments involve creating two almost opposite seeming responses. You don't want to tell a person having a panic attack over snakes that they should tense up all their muscles. That's not going to help them. But despite the difficulty of doing these things at the same time, and despite the harshness of that physiological reaction, blood phobics can benefit greatly from applied tension combined with exposure therapy too. But applied tension is enough, it looks like, for many people. Um, blood phobics, interestingly, continue to benefit after training despite stopping intentionally straining in the face of these stimuli. You see all these people saying, well, they no longer have the vasovagal syncope drop because they're no longer anxious about it. But really, I think they're just breaking the nervous system's conditioned response where it associates the needle or the blood with the drop in blood pressure by, by having that tension response. It just not having a drop in blood pressure kills the loop. Similarly to how a person has a conditioned fear response in a traditional phobia, in a BII phobia, one's vasovagal response becomes conditioned, conditioned in addition to naturally responding in the first place. I think that this is actually kind of one of those things with the happy ending because there's stuff you can do to help if you have blood phobia. It's a really harrowing thing to have. You should know that you are not alone and that there's something you can do about it with this applied tension technique. So I will provide links to information on that. I know that's just me this time and it's a little bit weird. I've talked to a couple of you guys online about the technical problems we've been having and how, how I wanted to release more content and stuff like that. Thank you so much for your supportive messages um, and for your questions about what's uh, going on. Uh, doing something solo in the gap because I don't have to worry about uh, coordinating things over the hundreds of miles between me and JJ. Um, but, and soon I'm going to be releasing the episode that was giving me all that trouble. I may have to re-record some segments of it, at least on my end, because it came through garbled uh, when she was recording. Or I may just release you a, a version with those parts garbled if it's not reparable and just give you a transcript. It's not much. It's like 30 or 40 seconds out of the whole thing. I think you'd survive. But if, if not, if, you know, if I can avoid it, I'd like to not do that. So all my love and goodbye, Pepper fans. I'd like to thank Dr. Loren Murphy for telling me pronunciations.